Okay. Welcome everybody to Cancer Center Grand Rounds. I'm going to uh, uh, introduce the speaker, and I'm going to start by saying that the speaker, Dr. Kirshner, because I always forget to say this if I don't say it first, does not have any financial interests. He reports he does not intend to discuss off-label or investigator uses of a product or device. Is that right? Yeah. And he's not receiving any direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity uh, over and above the NIH. Um, we, uh, I think it was uh, Jack Winberg a number of years ago that said that geography is destiny. And um, of course, when, when he said that, he was referring to the fact that if you lived in a place uh, where there were a lot of kind of surgeons, you had a higher risk of having an elective surgical procedure, for example. Um, and um, that kind of idea has spawned a tremendous amount of research and, and in fact is kind of the basis for an entire institute, for the research of an entire institute here. Um, so geographic or geospatial research isn't new to Dartmouth. Um, what's a little bit new is um, using geospatial methods to uh, better understand behavior. And so um, what we've been doing for about, I don't know, two or three years now is to start to apply geospatial methods to better understand how geography can affect behavioral outcomes. And uh, Madeline Dalton has looked at uh, uh, how the built environment affects exercise in children. Um, we're looking at um, how uh, research, uh, 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 outlet density can affect uh, relapse to smoking and smokers. So you can imagine uh, somebody that's uh, always craving a cigarette, the, 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 the likelihood that they'll relapse could be related to how often they walk by a point of sale, because every point of sale is a temptation. And the same could be true for um, people that are alcoholics that are trying to quit drinking, and uh, marijuana smokers in California, or in uh, in uh, Colorado who are trying to quit smoking. Um, and um, so um, this really involves um, trying to get good assessments of behavior. And there are some really interesting techniques that Dr. Kirshner is going to tell us about uh, that involve uh, mobile device technology to really understand where people go during the day and how their cravings and things like that relate to where they are in a community in relation to things like points of sale. Tom Kirshner's a young investigator at the Stephen Schrader, Schroeder National Center uh, Institute for Tobacco Research and Policy Studies at the American Legacy Foundation. Um, he has uh, affiliations with the Bloomberg School of Public Health and the Department of Oncology uh, at the Lombardi Cancer Center. Um, he trained uh, with Saul Shipman. Anybody who knows about behavioral will know who Saul Shipman is he's the guy that really developed these techniques, these mobile device techniques for assessing behavior. And in the course of training with Dr. Schiffman, uh, what Tom really did a lot to help us understand um, how people crave tobacco during the course of their day and what kinds of things increase their cravings for, uh, for smoking tobacco. And he's since kind of launched on a career to really understand that how, how these uh, uh, things like points of sale affect uh, um, people's behaviors. And we invited him here because we're interested in that, too, and we wanted to see if there were any possible collaborations. So um, he's a really bright young investigator, has uh, 28 publications already. He was here. We'd probably put him up for associate professor. And so uh, thanks very much for agreeing to come, and uh, we're excited to hear what you have to say. Thank you, Jim. Thanks a lot. Thanks for that introduction. <clears throat> Hello, everyone. Thanks for having your lunch with me today. Um, I have another disclaimer, and that's that I had a cold over the weekend. I'm feeling a lot better, but my throat is a little iffy, and I've been talking nonstop all morning, and it was starting to fade a little bit, so I'm drinking a lot. Samir got me a tea, and if I dry up or anything like that, you know, that's, that's why. Just bear with me, please. So, let's see. So, I'd like to start at... 30,000, this isn't quite 30,000 feet, but I'd like to start with the overview of this work. Um, this is actually DC, where I'm from, and uh, this is DuPont Circle, 
and uh, our building's right here. That's my office right there, actually. And um, just to get the sort of the perspective on this stuff, you know, if we're talking about tobacco use behavior, alcohol, eating, anything, it happens within these highly complex uh, areas. And this is difficult to deal with, right? It's difficult to put this into a statistical model, quantify it. Um, but that's really, that's where we'd like to try to get. Um, and really the foundation for a lot of the work I'm going to be talking about today is the physical link between people um, and their environment that's based on this thing, the, the mobile phone. Um, I trained with Saul Shipman and, and we called this thing ecological momentary assessment and, and it's still called that. But for a long time, the traditional application of that has been ecological in the sense that we know the people are out there. And they, and, sure, and they are in their real-world environments. Uh, but we really haven't been taking advantage of the, the new world of geographic information systems and the huge amount of data that are in those. And so making EMA truly ecologically explicit by linking individuals directly to geographic information systems via their phones or other, other devices they can carry sort of opens up a lot of new doors for interesting creative uh, research. So. Um, this is an interesting little map from the San Francisco, um, I don't know, Department of Something in San Francisco. This is from 1923. And it just sort of demonstrates that this isn't new. These, these ideas have sort of been around. Uh, city planners have known that uh, economic development is very much tied to not only their cities, but the mobility through their cities. This is interesting in the sense that it's probably an early version of what you might call a heat map or, uh, or a density map in GIS. What they did here was they manually counted uh, pedestrian flow through the streets of San Francisco and just drew it in uh, here. So it's just sort of an interesting case and it shows how far back some of this goes. But of course now our te the technology and our analysis methods really uh, have taken us light here years ahead in terms of what we can do to leverage this information. This is actual mobility data from the DC, Virginia, Maryland metro area. It looks a lot like a circulatory system, which is kind of interesting. It suggests to me that when you strip away the buildings, which you can't really see, it's one of those slides where they're too faint. Um, it suggests how, you know, it's really the mobility of people through cities and where they go that's the lifeblood of, of cities. Um, now, in other areas, this sort of work has proven uh, highly useful. Uh, this is an example by, uh, by, it's hard to read, Stephen Eubank and his group. He's now at uh, the, uh, Virginia Tech. Um, and this was published in Nature. There's been a lot of this sort of stuff uh, done by what are called so, uh, computational social scientists using dynamic modeling techniques to look at things like, in this case, uh, infectious disease outbreaks. And very much along the lines of what I'm going to be talking about today, overlaying what they know about uh, mobility through city areas to make, to, to understand uh, and build predictive models of how to deal with uh, things like the spread of infectious disease. There's examples of this with particulate matter. Uh, people interested in behavioral health have not utilized these sort of highly powerful techniques uh, in the same way. Um, we do talk about agents and vectors and hosts and environment, though, and, and some of our key agents, you know, tobacco, alcohol, uh, high-calorie food and beverage, they're distributed across our urban landscapes in, in a lot of ways uh, similar to other toxins like germs and, and particulate matter. Um, Jane Jacobs, I like to just throw this in as background because it's cool. If you don't know Jane Jacobs, she wrote a famous, really seminal book called The Death and Life of Great American Cities in 1961. She's an advocate who almost single-handedly saved Greenwich Village from um, a highway development project. But in uh, the Need for Short Blocks section of her book, she talks about the way street networks and mobility patterns are what reciprocally determine the development of retail, uh, retail and economic storefronts in cities. So I hope that sort of sets the stage for what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to present a number, depending on how much time I have, I'm going to talk about a number of methodologies that we've been developing to try to understand some of the dynamics that I've been talking about. On the one hand, individuals going about their daily activities with this 
physical link and time and place to their immediate circumstances, and then all the data that we can pull in about the information uh, about their about their surroundings, um, without their knowledge, you know, uh, without any burden on them. Um, and this is also nice because it highlights a, a budding collaboration we have. This is with Jim's group and uh, with Heather Carlos in particular and other members of his team who have helped us populate this, this sort of this, I usually call it community level, but this is more than community level, but really it's that higher level layer of data that we then use to inform our micro uh, work at the level of individuals. So this is a, a, a point map of uh, retail outlets it comes to about 270,000 outlets across the United States. That's not all of the outlets. These data are somewhat flawed. They're from business lists. They're about as good as it gets in terms of an overall picture of where retail outlets are in the United States. But one thing, they're not necessarily great for understanding you know, the, the implications of one particular little blip or another. But what they're very good at for are understanding the relative distribution. So even though we don't have every outlet in this sample, we can feel very confident that the, the relative distribution of where these outlets exist is representative of what the actual distribution is. And Heather Carlos helped us create, uh, using what's called kernel density estimation, a continuous probability surface that represents uh, the, at what the density and conceptually what we think of as a person's access to uh, retail products, and in this case we're talking about tobacco, depending on where, they, where and when they, they, they happen to be moving around. Um, so who's moving around? Well, in this case, uh, this is an uh, ongoing cohort, an mobili international mobility cohort. As of a few weeks ago, we had over 1,000 folks contributing completely anonymized data. It doesn't queue on their phone. It sends up to the cloud. And it, it doesn't convey any, in any information about who they are or anything else. This is just raw mobility data. Um, it's, it, again, it's ongoing. Uh, the, the U.S. Uh, version of the sample has over 850 people in it now. It's not huge from a big data or population um, uh, analytics standpoint, but pretty good for some of this foundational work. Um, and one thing to note that you'll see is that you can't see it here because these are just points layered on top of each other, but about 20% of the data uh, comes from New York State and about 20% comes from the state of California, and the, the, the remaining 60% from elsewhere. And um, that's just the nature of uh, this, essentially this convenience sample. But it presented an interesting opportunity to contrast these areas. Uh, when you think about the way commuting patterns and mobility patterns in, in California work, much more distributed um, and, and sprawling, uh, you know, that's a little bit negative term, versus what you have in New York, which tends to be this hyper, um, uh, uh, urban, hyper-urban areas contrasted with a lot of suburban living. So um, we, uh, these are folks who are carrying a mobile app. I'm not going to say too much about this, but uh, it's utilizing something called trilateration. This is sort of a whole area for people who are interested in the technological side of this. But it, the point is, if you look at the, actually the blue dots here, these are uh, cell towers. In the old version of this technology, we would triangulate between cell towers. Now, with what Google and the other providers are doing by co uh, collecting data about every Wi-Fi hotspot, whether it's protected or not, you can imagine using the data and the single signal strength from every single one of these to any given mobile device and the ability to then uh, pinpoint their location much more accurately. This is what's happening when you have your Wi-Fi switched on and you see the little circle moving in and then jut jutting around as you're looking at your map on your, on your smartphone if you have one. This is what's happening. Okay, so uh, we start by calculating something called radius of gyration, which is something developed by the folks, uh, physicists at MIT, who are interested in individual mobility patterns. They don't care about health, really. I mean, that sounds strong, but they really don't. They're, they're more interested in things like transportation patterns and things like that. They're great at math, though, and they're leading the way in terms of standardized measures for understanding how people move. It's not really rocket science. It's, it's really just the standard. If you take a cluster of points, it's the standard deviation of the points from their center of mass. It has a lot of similarity to uh, least squares regression that we'd use uh, um, 
to, to find the best fitting regression line and just basic regression. So that, that's what that's if you if you want the equation, that's what we got there. So for 550 subjects participating over a median of about 211 days, um, we've got over two million observations, median of almost 3,000 per subject. We calculate. Uh, radius of gyration per hour, which results in, a, in, in 747,000 uh, individual uh, radius of gyration measures. And these are, uh, again, what I'm doing here, I'm not going to talk about these numbers. This is just to show the raw data. But you can see how we can break this out on New York versus California. It's always important to account for weekdays versus weekends with this sort of data, as well as the time of day sort of just some of the, the fundamentals. But again, a lot of this work, a lot of this really hasn't been done. Can, can you just explain in layman's terms what a radius of gyration is? I didn't just do this. No, I didn't understand what it meant. Is it like, a, is it like how, much they, is it how much they move in a certain period of time, or is it? It's, it's how far you move. That's how right. How they moved in a certain period of time. That's right. Yep. So if they're on the highway, the radius of gyration should be much higher at a point in time. Yeah, you know, actually, that's a good question, though, because what we did was we didn't we, we knew going in. There's some people who have looked at, a lot again, a lot of focus on transportation patterns. And there's been some papers looking at radius of gyration where they include things like air travel and high-speed car travel. And what you what's also clear, along with things like time of day and weekends and weekdays, is that travel days are a different animal, right? When you look at just a person's routine daily commute or their weekend, we tend to, to be very redundant. You know, we, we like to think of ourselves as free-willed thinkers, but we're actually a lot more like migrating geese than we'd like to think. You know, we tend to follow the same patterns. Uh, so we limited these mobility data to uh, cases where a person was not traveling. So I forget that student in my life found somewhere what you know. She basically we worked out what's the farthest you could travel, you know, at, at given a, a few parameters in a car or a plane in a given day, and we just got rid of essentially travel days because what we really want to look at here are um, regular days, regular weekdays, and regular. That's a good question actually for clarification. So sort of an initial way to, to validate this, even just from a gut check perspective, is to look at, look at the data. So here you've got radius of gyration in, in kilometers. And here you've got time. And these are just 0 to 24 hours in the day. And then you've got day of the week. And what you see is, over this is you know, starting, starting um, at midnight, the severe drop is people go to sleep, and they wake up, and, and they're moving more. And then what you see here is the difference between weekdays and then weekend would start on 5 o'clock on Friday, of course. You see, as people tend to go out more, they tend to little leave, leave a little earlier and maybe move a little bit more on Saturday. And then on Sunday, everybody who left on either Friday or Saturday you know, is returning. I guess that's one. That all is speculative. I, I don't know what's actually going on here. But you can see, this is somewhat reassuring in the sense that we're seeing a pattern that makes intuitive sense. I'm, I'm not going to try to interpret these results, but it's sort of just, I, I keep it up there to, again, to, to just illustrate a little bit about what we're dealing with here. You've got New York on the top row and California on the bottom. And you've got weekend versus weekday on the, in, in the blue shades here. And then you've got seasons on the left. And again, I don't want to interpret, but it, it, suffice it to say, and I'm going to say more about this in terms of the implications for retail access. Um, they're different. Uh, I, well, let me leave it at that because I also don't want to run out of time. But there's there's important differences between the, pe the way people move in New York and California, and what we're going to get to too is that they, they don't necessarily translate directly to the implications for retail access. So is that the average of everyone in those states? What do you mean? Yeah. So we're I mean we're we're aggregating a, a lot here. The the it is the average across the states. The thing is, is that the it, when you look at the, um, for instance, the distribute the spatial distribution in New York, it's I mean, for for intents and purposes, you're you're almost always talking about people who who go to New York City. Now, do they work there? A lot of them do, and then they leave and they go home. I I can't sit here and say they they work there because I, again, we're just drawing inference from where people move, but. For the most part, 
these, I say New York State and California, big state, because that's where the data come from. But when you look at the distribution of the data, we're primar primarily talking about New York City, San Francisco, and LA area. So, okay, so what we, just for the purpose of, of this sort of, again, this sort of this formative research, we, we published this in an engineering uh, proceedings I presented just a couple of weeks ago up there. Um, we uh, quantified uh, retail access um, as a function of um, hourly um, rate of gyration. So um, let me make sure I describe this uh, correctly. I don't want to get tongue-tied. And also my voice is starting to go a little bit. <coughs> right. So what we did is we have, like I described, <coughs> sorry, like we described, like I described, we calculated radius of gyration for each hour for each individual. So we had that sort of processed over here. We still had the real-time coordinate movement uh, data for each individual, of course. And so what we did was we took for each one of those coordinates, we linked them up to the probability, that continuous probability surface that I showed earlier. far back, but so each point was linked to this surface and thus populated with a um, density measure, an axis measure we conceptualized it as. And then just kind of like with radius of gyration, we aggregated that axis value at, the, at, the, at an hourly level so that now for each hour, each of the 747,000 hours, we have a radius of gyration measure and we have a measure of density, aka um, access to, to retail outlets. And those can then be breaking, broken down across these various categorical areas. Um, we use, this is, an, this is something I don't have time to go into, but I, I'm, I'm happy to do so, and, and if we want to talk about it later. Um, one issue with these data are that they're, they're count data, they're, and whether you treat them as count or continuous, they're highly skewed, highly, highly skewed. They are well outside of the bounds of anything you'd want to touch with a general linear model. And um, what we use as a result are um, categorical data analysis techniques and specifically log linear data modeling techniques, which are very good at handling these sorts of uh, data. Uh, essentially, uh, you can imagine all of these factors populating a very complex matrix of contingency tables. Uh, there's 750 plus cells in all of these tables. And what the, what the log linear model does is takes the log frequency of the cell counts and it allows us to systematically, uh, uh, in a hierarchical fashion, work down and work out which associations are explaining most of the variance. I basically just explained this slide, and I, again, this is way too much to try to explain in the context of this talk, but. This is the sort of idea, working up and down from a model that assumes that everything is independent versus a model that assumes that everything is associated. We can use hierarchical comparison techniques to understand which sort of fact, which factors are explaining what's going on the best. This is a mosaic output of this sort of model. It's a mosaic um, plot. A good way to explain this is that if there was no, if there was complete uh, independence between all the factors that we're talking about here, every box in this plot would be the same size. This would be a, this would look like a piece of graph paper. And what you see is uh, along the, the the axes here. This is access level. This is. Uh, New York versus California, and then time of day. California time of day, New York time of day. Um, and then, I don't even have a note today, but the, the color is um, uh, weekdays and the, and the hollow is weekends. You can, you can start to work out what's going on. Big picture, uh, what, what, we, what we see is that access in California tends to be higher overall and throughout the, the, the uh, across the levels of access, but in New York, um, we see this hyper uh, levels of access, so such as to say that even though they're not um, access isn't high overall, you know the, my guess is what going what's going on here is that when people move into the city, their their levels of access are just going through the roof, to, uh, you know, almost like a ceiling effect. 
So you can see that here. Uh, and this is sort of suggesting what I touched on earlier. On the left, you've got radius of gyration. On the right, you've got access. So what you can see is that they're not, that, that you cannot necessarily drive one from the other. So let's look at California. California overall, again, radius of gyration is higher, but that doesn't necessarily translate to higher levels of access. Go back to New York, lower levels of gyration, and yet you've got this hyper peaking in terms of, in terms of access. So um, this, this is sort of just low level work, sort of um, uh, not necessarily groundbreaking in terms of the inference or the implications for policy at this point, the, the stuff that I've described so far. But we're excited about the, the potential for these kind of methods as we think about, as we've been talking with Jim and others, about how to handle these sort of these big data when we're talking about large uh, cityscapes and, and, and national scapes. Um, and really just to, at, on a certain level to make a point, which is that when we think, when we think about policy and we think about uh, what the implications for, for instance, retail access and the associated behavioral outcomes, um, it's not necessarily the case that, uh, that, the, that the way they're going to work is going to be the same in New York as it is in California, for example. And mobility and the way people interact with these cities has a lot to do with that. So all, your um, gyration is all based on distance covered? It's not time involved in traveling? Well, we aggregate it within a time unit. But it, no, right. I mean, so it might take me two hours to get to Boston. It might take my nephew in Brooklyn two hours to get to Washington Heights. Um, so those are very your, your two hours to Boston would probably be removed, because that, that is part of the problem of including travel data. Like, the, see, that, that's part of the, we're, again, we're really interested in looking at um, patterns in this data set within routine travel, right? So um, if you're, you're, are you suggesting like on a train or something like that or in a car? Again, I'm thinking even in terms of commuting. So uh -huh. here people may take half hour, 45 minutes to mm -hmm. go 40 miles, whereas in New York City, half hour, 45 minutes to go, whatever, five miles. So I'm just trying to understand gyration is the distance thing. Right, it's the distance, it's hourly distance. I mean, we're aggregating it within, within one hour bins. We could do it in smaller bins. Um, it depends on the sampling rate you have, the, 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 uh, res the temporal resolution that you could get. I mean, you could get better temporal resolution if you had more mobility points and therefore able to calculate gyration uh, more iteratively. But, but it's uh, distance and density, right? I mean, the, the thing that drives the New York City thing on the right is that for, for, for like a, a, a mile of travel, they're going to encounter dozens of tobacco outlets. Whereas in California, the mile of travel is going to be many fewer. Yeah, that's the implication for, yeah. For, for, for retail. But um, I mean, you're right. You know, it's important to consider time. I mean, the implications for mode of travel and things like traffic and et cetera are important to consider. Um, I mean, that's partly what we get when we, when we aggregate within the time unit. Um, and an hour, I mean, as far as this data goes in the literature, an hour is pretty good. But we could do better. Um, there's some technological bounds, though. I mean, the, the more mobility data you collect from a phone, the, the more impact on the battery it has. So we can talk more about it. Um, yeah. So um, OK, so this is, uh, I should check my time. So this is a, another application that is much more specific and, and gets at a, at a more micro level to try to understand uh, the link between, again, individual mobility and retail uh, outlet, uh, but this time not just access to the, to the uh, surface of available products, but to specific outlets and to specific advertising at specific outlets, and then looking prospectively at behavioral um, outcomes. So this is, uh, and I'll tell you a little bit more about the trial that it comes from. But to, get, to get it started, and this is published in a couple of places, uh, American Journal of Pre Predict, uh, Preventive Medicine in 2013 um, was a good example of it. 
Um, on the left here, this is uh, the DC municipal area, and the red dots are all the tobacco outlets in the area. Right here, this little cluster, this little web, this is the mobility patterns of one individual participant over the first month of a trial in which they've successfully quit smoking and are trying to uh, maintain that cessation attempt. If you take three days of that data on the right, uh, you can see the way this person is coming into contact with tobacco outlets in their area. And this suggests a couple of things. I call it sort of a regular randomness. Again, sort of look at the remarkable redundancy of this person's mobility patterns, okay? And then look at the, their interaction with uh, the point layer. This is not something we can, we can really predict ahead of time, right? They're, they're traveling in this way for their, for their own reasons. Um, but there's a couple of things to take away. One is that this person's experience of the point of sale environment is not the same. It's not equivalent to the aggregate. Almost all the work you'll see in the literature talks about pricing over neighborhoods at best or over municipal areas or near schools. But this is, with the individual as unit, we can think about each individual sort of personal point of sale ecology. And the implication of that is that, you know, removing any one or set of these outlets from the equation really degrades your ability to understand potentially what's going on for this person. So when we first started out with this stuff, this was sort of one of the initial challenges. Almost everything in the literature, again, used a, a sampling approach, a random selection approach. There wasn't any reason, if you're not doing this, to try to collect data about everything in a city, but that's what we wanted to do. DC was not bad for that, because it's not the biggest city in the world. So what we did, we used a geographic information system, we routed field workers through the city, and we went to every outlet. We took photos, surveys, we've done some reliability work. This has been sort of an ongoing process. Um, we used uh, mapping applications, but really we're most excited about photos now. This is a custom street view camera that we pur purchased and started using. Uh, and these are glasses that take an eight megapixel picture every one second. This is a pre-doc who's taken these into um, every outlet in four different urban and rural counties in West Virginia. And uh, he comes out with 100 gigs of data out of each outlet. And we have huge <laughs> amounts of data. It's the Wild West in West Virginia in terms of point of sale. What you can note about these images is that these are stitched together. So these are, this is huge amounts of data, um, and you can zoom in on these, and I'm going to show you more. Notice how they're oblong, though, and they go around corners. <clears throat> so how we construct one, he goes in and he's moving his head slowly, and the, the, the glasses are taking photos. We can deal with the lighting and so forth. And notice the lottery, the, the lottery thing on the counter that we're not interested in. We stitch these together. We can get rid of the lottery. That's all that's left of it. This one was pre-light processing. We can see everything here. It's, it's you know, Photoshop's pretty powerful. And importantly, we can zoom in, right? So we can then, once we have a common target, we can break it apart, and then we can use crowdsourcing technologies to process it. It's too much information here to use interns, right? I think the days of like hiring two interns and getting them to agree 70% of the time I think are, are on their way out. They're still important, but the, 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 really there's a lot, uh, one of the things that's most exciting about this technology, it's not quite there yet, but one of the things that's most exciting are the implications for actually data processing and reliability. This is an example, that if you're not familiar with distributed human commutation or crowdsourcing or Amazon's Mechanical Turk, um, this is an example, once we break these images apart, we can submit just little small little bits, and this is actually an older example. But um, we built a number of tools where people can just, we can have one person crop it out, we can resubmit that and ask the next person just to type in the three numbers that they see. So by breaking these things down, we can increase the reliability by making each little task actually very simple. We can do this quickly. This is a, a kind of an older example again, but we can, this is an example where we got 15 independent ratings of about 1,500 photos. We completed that in under four hours. I think it costs about $2,500. So this is something that would take forever with interns, and it still probably wouldn't work, and we can do this fast. We can also, we're also developing some reliability um, techniques. These are the number of coders that we would have each uh, look at each image, and we can look at the variability um, between coders, crowd sizes of different sizes. Uh, by using resampling techniques. I know I'm sort of throwing a lot out here, but if you're familiar with this stuff, 
Um, hopefully this is interesting, and if you're curious, we ask questions or let me know if you want to talk more. Essentially, we can get a big sample, say 500 people, and pull out all samples of two, right, and have them rate something, and then look at the variation in accuracy between samples of two. We can redo that with samples of three, samples of five, samples of seven, and we can look at the point where the samples tend to agree with each other, and therefore are more representative of the population of a whole, and that way, we know the threshold at which we can feel confident in a certain crowd size. So um, I, don't, I don't think I have time to talk about this, but an inadvertent consequence of a lot of this work is we had all this data. And we've been able to publish a, a number of cool papers just at the level of the community. Some work in, these are actual photos. This is some work in central Harlem looking at e-cigarette uh, uh, use. We did some. Uh, some of the first work of its kind, looking at little uh, cigar and cigarillos in, uh, across the DC area and at the length of disparities. I apologize, I'm not gonna say anything about it because I really don't think I have time. I wanna get back to our individual who's moving through DC. So because we have all of this information about each one of these points, what we can do is we can actually quantify what this person's point of sale ecology looks like. So over this three-day period, they have a mean of 2.3 touches over, over a sample of, of six outlets. And we can see that the, the average pack price at those outlets for Newport is you know, what it is, and the average price for LCCs is what it is. Um, and often different from what it would be if you were to just aggregate and ask, what do cigarettes cost in Washington, DC? So in this trial, people were, everybody who called the quit line in DC was given an opportunity to participate. And if they did, they uh, were given a, a phone with a, sm a smoking cessation um, assistance app. Um, not like a lot of the ones you see in the app store. The whole idea here was what's called now sometimes personal informatics. Um, it sort of goes back to the bread and butter of CBT though. This idea that understanding a behavior and it empowers you to change it. So understanding your tendencies, what works for you, what doesn't, collecting your own data and reflecting on it can help you achieve successful action. This is some of the, what, the, what the app uh, looks like. This is an example of where a person's taking, uh, looking at their craving and they're breaking it out by the types of triggers, et cetera. They receive graphics. There's a social networking support element too. This sample is about 475, it wasn't about, it was exactly 475 um, people. Most of them agreed. Uh, uh, privacy is another thing you can talk about with this work. Our experience is that people love this stuff. They love to look at their maps, their data, they're interested in it. We've had very high rates of, of interest and participation in these things. We can set them like anyone else and we can protect this data. Um, we also had a high degree of geo-coordinate uh, capture success. This isn't always the case. Another thing I could talk about, the different technologies that are currently being used. Um, uh, but I can explain why if there's interest in that um, maybe afterwards. But let me get through some of the major take homes. So this is a, uh, it's a pretty entrenched sample. These folks are on average about 45 years old. They're smoking on average um, uh, 12 cigarettes a day. You know, it's a pretty, pretty heavy smoking group though overall. And, and notably, this is a, a sample that's almost 95% African-American, which is consistent with the recruitment data from the DC quit line over the last five years or so. So this is just a histogram, but it's a pretty cool histogram in the sense that it's some of the only data on, the, on this particular issue, which is this idea of real-time exposures to, to point-of-sale retail. So you've got you know, the, the number, the density, the number of participants, and then you've got the average retail exposures per day. You've got the, the, the density and then you've got uh, the, the bars with their centers representing the uh, between and within person standard deviations. Um, just representing uh, the, the, the average retail exposures but then the, the uh, variation. So a lot of people average one but there's, there's a lot of within and between person variation from day to day in terms of their, their level of exposure. So here's some of the, just a, a main effect of what we see, and it, it was striking. So you got daily posts, that's point of sale tobacco context, and the probability of a real-time lapse. So they're, they're, conduct, they're participating in this EMA trial, and uh, they're keeping track of their success with, with cessation. Folks who relapse are not in these data. Folks who relapse, at the point they relapse, they become relapsed and are not part of the group that are still trying to quit. Um, 
And, and, and what you have here are um, odds ratios with uh, confidence intervals. And it, you know, it looks kind of flat, but you've got to pay attention to the, the odds ratio numbers here and the fact that these are pretty sizable effects that continue to increase as the number of contacts increases within a day. So, and th there are some challenges with the observational na nature of these data, but this graph helps to touch on some of that. It's another thing that I want to save for the end if people want to talk about it, but um, I, I will come back to it if, if you all want to touch on the observational piece. But to su suffice it to say for now, seeing a pretty strong effect of uh, contacts with uh, point-of-sale tobacco and the probability of a, of a lapse of it on the same day. So here's where we look at um, craving. So these folks are recording their um, urge to smoke over continuously over these days, varying numbers of times. But we look at the average number uh, per day, and we come up with a daily craving. You can see the distribution. Um, zero, close to zero, um, is about half the days. Low days where they're doing okay, this is one to five out of the 11 point scale, about a third of days. And then really days where they're struggling, about 16% of days. And those high craving days in this analysis represent the reference group, uh, the, the, the reference group to which we're comparing low craving and zero craving days. And this, this isn't what we predicted. Um, we, we thought that higher, you know, higher amount of contact with uh, point-of-sale tobacco was going to increase more craving, and that was going to be related to, to lapsing. What you actually see here is that as contacts rise, the, the probability of a lapse is much greater on the zero craving days, close to zero craving days, a little less on low craving days relative to high. So, you know, what's going on here? My, my, what I think is going on here, what I talk about in the paper, um, retrospectively, it's, it's sort of one of these things that's like, oh, yeah, we should have predicted that. But, you know, um, we think what's happening is that essentially on these high days, right, they were going to smoke anyway. These are days where they're really struggling, and the variance in the what we can predict in terms of their likelihood of smoking is low because they were going to smoke. It's these zero days when they were arguably, from this perspective, more vulnerable, right? So they, they're not reporting a craving, and it's, it's precisely on those days when, they when they're in the presence of outlets more frequently that they're potentially being cued, they're, they're being, you know, so that so you've got that factor. It's got more variance to explain. Um, yep. Just quick, um, was there anything built in as far as exposure and behavioral pattern to say, displays that are easily accessible without barriers or if they had to be somewhere where they had to ask for a product, so the type of exposure. Not at that be. level. We're not quite there yet. We can go there. We're still at more basic level, but I'm going to present something next that gets us this idea of, uh, this sort of tone to Sue about earlier, the difference between measuring just objectified contact with outlets and trying to understand what is it about the outlet? Is there, is there something specific? So you're naming one, one, one question we might ask. Even geographically, just so many different laws and regulations for access. They... Yeah, there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot going on. So this, this is, I think, what's going on. Um, uh, expo exposure mattered most when temptation was otherwise low. Um, Consistent with the Q activity data showing Q effects weakened as background craving intensifies. Consistent with NRT data on effectiveness on combination tonic and phasic delivery modalities. That's a, that, that's a mouthful. I'm not sure I have. Uh, and let me just try to say simply what I'm saying. Go ahead. Yeah, so one thing I'm wondering is if you were able to utilize longitudinality and um, to be able to measure somebody's craving status at one point in time and see if subsequent to that that influences their like, location of this mobility stuff. Definitely. Before I did this work, I got really interested in recurrent event shared frailty survival models. These are essentially mixed effects or hierarchical survival models that allow you to look at longitudinal patterns over repeated events, like something like lapsing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, lapsing over a temporally variable sort of sequence. So definitely, you can do that sort of thing. And you can do that across days, or you can do that within days, or you can do it in a hierarchical model where you look within and across. So you could go crazy if you wanted to with this. Um, 
I'm thinking about that and I'm interested in it, but uh, I haven't been able to do it yet. Uh, I'm not convinced we would get signal from that. I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, you know. So is it that coming into contact with um, three is, is predicting temporally that the lapse is going to happen more, more rapidly? Uh, or is it more of a just a uh, Quantity, a uh, quantity of exposure, or is it? Or is it quality of exposure? Is it not the sequence or the timing? Is it that is something specific about outlet six? Yeah. Which or is it craving driving contact or contact driving craving? Yeah. Well, kind of that gets back to the directionality thing. I mean, so since you say that, let me just quickly. So the issue here, right? If you go to the store to buy a pack of cigarettes, you, you're, you, you probably do it because you have high craving. And it, it, when you go there, you have contact with it, and then you smoke. So it's easy to see why the, the, the causal direction could go in the other direction. In, in circumstances like this, all we have is to hope that something about the data helps us, gives us like a foothold to, to suggest otherwise. And one of the things here that sort of when I was first thinking about this and really struggling with it, one of the things that made me feel better was we actually looked at the EMA data on the, the lapse episodes themselves. And it's over 90% of the time that when there's a lapse, it's, it's once in the day, and it, it overwhelmingly tends to be a single cigarette. And that is pretty inconsistent with what we're seeing here. So, so from that, that, that scenario I just painted, that would suggest that this, this is a person going out to buy cigarettes many times that this is within one day to drive this pattern. Our lapse data suggests otherwise. So you can talk, uh, we can talk more about it, but that, that makes me feel a little better about what we're suggesting here. But it's, sort of this, it's actually a good thing to sort of, I've been learning from too. Is I, I think there's a lot to be learned from observational data, but it's tricky and we have to like tread, tread carefully. I'm pretty low on time, but I think I can get through this last little thing. Um, so, okay, the point of sale landscape is not a static community level factor. Mobility, receptivity, reactivity are associated with behavior, suggesting future directions. Actually, this is a question. Right? Is it receptivity and reactivity? What's going on? Do we know that the person was actually seeing anything that we put them next to? It's intriguing in the sense that with germs and particulate matter, all people can do is breathe them in. When people come into contact with ads, now we can bring in all the psychological filters and all the research on behavioral decision making and all the rest. And, you know, you could think of a lot of areas for research to understand why does coming into contact with these things have effect on some people but not others. But in the stuff I just described, I didn't say anything about that. Right? It, it was just it was just raw contact. Saul Schiffman, at a, when I was presenting this at a, at a national conference, did was the discussant, and he said, "This is my my attempt at a stupid joke." But he said, "If it, he did say this, if a smoking cue falls in the woods, does anyone react to it?" It's like I don't know. You know, were, were people even looking when did they did they go in with their blinders on and buy a Twinkie and walk out of the store, or did they just stop by the store and talk to a neighbor in in the eve, or you know, we don't even really know. One thing we can do though is take the information we have. Remember, we collected all this information about each outlet. So we can weight our model based on what we know about each outlet. And we might be able to draw some inference. If we can predict behavioral outcomes based on specific things that are outlets and some outlets but not at others, then we can suggest that it was something about, it was something qualitative about the outlet. It wasn't just being there. Uh, if, if, we, if we can't, if, if these sort of factors don't predict behavior, then well, maybe, maybe we're not, maybe we don't under, understand the system well enough. So this is the proportion of retail outlets, just to give you an idea of the distribution of different types. And what you have here is just the overall number of outlets of each type, and then you've got the overall from the mobility data, from the contacts. So you've got the error bar uh, being between subjects, and you can see how, in mo I think it's in all cases, the overall number is within the error, but then there's a lot of variation between subjects in the relative number of contacts with each type of outlet. This is kind of interesting on its own right. So we can then, again, we can go back to our original analysis and basically do a moderation analysis where we look at the probability of a lapse. We have contacts, which are fewer now because it's contacts per outlet type. 
And uh, we can ask, what's the association that's, that's driving that pattern we saw earlier? Well, let's strip away the non-significant and look. So we, we're left with convenience stores, gas, and, and liquor stores. And, and pretty, especially convenience, but then together culminating at the top here as, as, outlet, as exposures get uh, over four or five. Um, pretty, strong, pretty strong effects of just the retail category. I was talking with some of the folks earlier. Right now, my suspicion is that retail category is gonna explain as much of the variance in what's going on with these outlets as anything else. I talked earlier about how we, we wanna be able to pull every product off the shelf and there's some interesting sort of micro stuff and even from a methodological point of view, it's fun to do. But in terms of predicting behavior, right now, I think the null hypothesis is that just knowing is it a national CBS or a Joe's, privately owned Joe's Crab Shack, that's gonna explain most of the, right there, you could probably guess which one is gonna have external ad, which one is gonna have more of a presence on the, inter, inside, of the, on the inside of the outlet. Um, so we looked again with the reference of zero ads, we looked at outlets with interior ads only and interior plus exterior. So that instead of just the retail category, we looked at this way of quantifying it, which are directly related to each other, like I just suggested. And you can see the, the, the relative moderating effects. So we, our odds ratio 1.11, jumping up to something else. Uh, again, though, significantly higher based on the, on the number of ads. So, so it's something about, probably have a summary, yeah, outlet-specific features matter, not just density and contact, store types and ad placement. So individual receptivity and reactivity may matter. Uh, there's natural extensions to, to other types of products. One thing we're trying to, we're putting in for an administrative supplement, supplement now. I have a new R01 using some of these methods. FDA wants to know about the impact of flavored products. So what we want to do is use a lot of the methods I described today. Then we want to be bring people into the lab and use the, some of the well-validated implicit and explicit um, attitude task. If you guys have heard of the implicit um, association task or, or things like this um, that are uh, well calibrated, as I understand it, it's not exactly my area, for um, picking up on attitudes towards different things that they may or may not even be aware of. So we're very curious if we can pick up a signal in the lab based on what we measure sometimes completely passively. So you imagine a person might not be able to tell you every feature of everything on every street that they pass, even though they walk the same route to work or school um, every day. We may be able to pick up on some of that in the lab. It's actually a really interesting question to think about. What can we pick up on and what can't we? Where's that threshold? That's sort of an interesting area to pursue. You know, We'll see if we get funded for that. Uh, so I've sort of said these things a number of times, but I think it's good to repeat, I guess. So point-of-sale marketing is not a fixed community level factor. Individual point-of-sale ecologies, I think, is a really good, I think is a really important point. I think more generally, the way we think about individual differences as this static trait thing, I think, and we, we would, I think a lot of times, it, including myself when I first was starting to think about this stuff, Mobility seems like it's this dynamic thing. It's, it's not an individual difference. It's, it's like a lot of other longitudinal variables that we would measure over time. But the more we look at the data, the more it seems like, based on redundancy and other things, that actually your mobility pattern is a characteristic. And some of the language we use sometimes is a, is a mobility signature. Because the way you move, at least on your regular weekdays or your regular weekends, put it that way, tends to be very re uh, redundant. And, it, and that has interesting implications for the ways we can uh, measure this more easily. I mean, with even just a couple of weeks or a week of mobility tracking, you can add that to a baseline assessment that then allows you to plug that person in, again, to all of the data that's available about the city and the places that they're moving through. Um, we're gonna be looking at marijuana as well in Colorado. I can talk more about that. These methods have also proven really great for collaboration engagement. I'm talking all about the research implications today, but the methods we've developed and the technologies extend directly to groups who, for instance, want to collect data locally about how the indus different industries are targeting to their kids. Uh, kids who want to create their own map and take it to the city council meeting and say, look, you know, this is what I have to pass on the way to school. There's a lot of intriguing uh, possibilities there as well. These are some of our mobility co uh, cohorts in the field now. We can manage this stuff remotely. 
and our, our colleagues. So that's it. Thanks a lot for your attention. For, for questions, I, I just wanted to um, leave the question. One of the things that people are really interested in here is how self-regulatory capacity in individuals changes from day to day. And I just wanted to know if you could comment on whether you're trying to assess that as one of those individual factors that might play into how receptive somebody's going to be to environmental cues. Sure. Yeah, that stuff is fat. Uh, Roy Baumeister and uh, you know willpower is a muscle that you can develop. That stuff is really interesting to think about. Yeah, I guess I, to throw one thing out, the first thing I think of that I think also touches on some of the other uh, power, potential power of these methods, is that when when you have continuous information about a, where a person's moving, that alone can give you a lot of information that you would usually get uh, if you were going to obtain it. Uh, with a much higher level of burden. So you might use an EMA protocol to look at something like a person's, you know, I, I don't know what the variable exactly is. Self-confidence. So, okay, yeah, efficacy or something like that. Right, efficacy, yeah. So they, so we're, you know, to do that with EMA, the traditional method, we have to ask them constantly. Self-efficacy could vary continuously, practically. And that's the problem with EMA. You know, we have to, the burden is so high and, and, and that causes a lot of problems. It, you know, most people are pretty aware of at this point. The um, the thing with uh, so self-regulatory capacity. The thing with mobility data is that first of all, you don't have to ask them constantly, right? If I get a self-efficacy value, say at the local bar where you go to cope, if I just get one of those, now I know that that's your local bar and that's where you go to cope. And I know every time you go to that bar, even when I don't happen to be asking you about that bar, right? So it, it, the, the potential of that, you know, the implications of this are pretty big if you ask me. I mean, I get excited as an EMA researcher. But you know, imagine now you're participating in a trial. And you've been in the trial for three weeks and maybe have one week left. And your, your efficacy is dropping. And you go to the bar and you say, I'm, I'm holding on by a string here, doc. You know. Well, now we can populate that bar in your ecology data and your mobility data all the way back, right, retrospectively. We can just extrapolate out if we wanted to. It would be one way to test a, one particular question. So now, whereas in a typical EMA analysis, your whole, all of your data set, the only data you would have are the t points where you happen to ask somebody about this particular construct. And then you might ask, well, does it tend to be bars or does it tend to be something else? Now, if I know for you it's bars and if I know for you it's something else, we can, we can look in your data and we can prospectively predict uh, things like your, your, you know, your other responses or your daily check-in across these days, whatever it is. Go back, go back. Well, you can see, that's, a, that's like another, the intervention thing is a whole other thing. But uh, yeah, being able to extrapolate without asking people to evaluate the same questions that we would use with traditional EMA, I think is potentially a, a really uh, powerful way to utilize the methods. Questions. Um, thank you. I, you know, I remember years ago going to Saul Schiffman's first presentation on EMA, and Jim and I were sitting there, and we were like, "Wow, you know, it's really interesting." But I can't imagine anybody's going to be able to use that data. So it's nice to see that you figured out a way to all proved you wrong. make use of so much data. Um, now with the smoke-free ordinances, the landscape has changed a little bit, right? And so back when they started, mobility wasn't so closely tied to exposure to people smoking. But it is now, right? Because everybody's got to go out on the sidewalk to smoke. And so are you, I would imagine that's really highly correlated with their point of contact. If you're on foot and you're walking past these outlets, you're walking past a lot of people smoking. Have you? Like, do you have any way to measure that and tease that out? Well, so, yeah, you know, one of the fun things that's been about these methods is that they're really flexible. And it's been fun for me because I, it seems like I can meet with anybody and we can talk about how we can collaborate with this stuff because it's like anything you can measure, uh, we can put people in touch with. Um, so it's a, it's a great question. We have an R21 now, what I'm a co-I on, but we're looking at e-cigarette use. And uh, so we're interested in the relationship between e-cigarette use and uh, 
smoke uh, clean air restrictions, that sort of thing. So uh, indirectly, I can say yes, but that doesn't exactly get at your question. Your question gets at this uh, another one of these holy grails, which is how do we actually measure these things? So how do we measure actual smoking? Without, you know, asking people, did you smoke, is problematic, right? Um, so and uh, secondhand smoke or thirdhand smoke with clean air, that, that's something actually that you could see getting, I mean, with, with the rising uh, availability of sensors, et cetera. No, and I meant as a cute, like they're reacting to seeing somebody smoking, not to the sign. Right. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. I thought you meant uh, their exposure to secondhand smoke. No. It's like the difference between passing a convenience store where people go in and buy, then they leave, and maybe a bar where they're coming out to smoke. Well, you'd have to measure it. It all comes down to how can you measure it, right? So um, can you uh, come up with a way? I mean, so do the, do the areas where people tend to smoke outside, it seems like you would ha it would have to be based on time of day, and it seems like you would have to pick some window of time. So the probability that, that one or more people are smoking outside of this outlet on, uh, from 6 to 7 p.m. on a Friday night, and you could send your interns out and check yes or no, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, the question is, can you measure it? If you can measure it, we can we can put it into right. the. Ge it's, that's the beauty of geographic information systems as well. You know, I thought you were going to say exposure to actual smoke, which is something I actually I th I'm hoping to talk to Sue about later because there's there's potential methods that that might be a little cleaner there, not, right. not cleaner. Right. But. No, I was thinking about the visual cues from the movie sure. plus you get the visual plus the scent, right? And, and that's going to prompt people to want to smoke. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and it's by time. It's by by time and space. I mean, yeah, it would be interesting. You'd have to collect the data, which is the you know. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm mindful of the time, and I know people have things to go to at once. So I want to thank you for coming. And, thank and, you. And, uh, anybody has other questions, then Tom will be happy to take them up here. Thanks.